Welcome to From the Front Porch, a conversational podcast about books, small business, and life in the South. Because identity is complicated, we can be proud of where we came from and desperate to escape it at the same time. Elizabeth Passarella, Good Apple. I'm Annie Jones, owner of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in beautiful downtown Thomasville, Georgia. And since you were so patient during our winter hiatus, this week we are bringing you a bonus episode featuring author Elizabeth Passarella. Elizabeth's debut memoir, Good Apple, shines a light on Southern evangelical culture with humor, nuance, and grace. And I'm thrilled to be talking with her today. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Annie. I'm so excited to be with you. I am so excited. Happy belated book birthday. Your book thank came you. out yesterday. Congratulations. At the time we're recording, yes, it came out yesterday. So thank you. So I first just have a really basic kind of how are you question, which is what has it been like to survive a global pandemic in New York City? <laughs> how are oh. you? <laughs> you know, um, I'm doing okay now. It's it's January. My children, I have three kids. Um the youngest is not in school, but the older two are in school part-time. We have kind of a hybrid system in the New York City public school system. So that has been a life-changing um, development in our world um, compared to the spring when everyone was home in a two-bedroom apartment, including my husband and I both trying to work. You know, it's the spring was really rough in New York, um, but it was really rough for everybody. You know, I've said this to so many people that there are definitely things that were harder in New York than they were in other places simply because we live in small spaces and we're all home and we don't have a backyard or a trampoline or a basement or an office. But, um, you know, we're all, it's, it's hard for everybody. I talked to my friends in Memphis, which is where I grew up. I talked to my college friends who live in North Carolina and I feel like we're all lamenting and complaining about the same things. So I feel like, yes, there are certain aspects of it that were really a lot more difficult in New York, especially in March and April and May, there were weeks where all we heard were ambulance sirens. It was rough, but I also think that it really showed the resilience of New York. I think our community really came together. We got to know our neighbors better because a lot of people were gone. So there were fewer of us in the elevators and in the hallways or in the park um, in the afternoons. Central Park was a lifesaver with kids. So there were fewer of us kind of walking around. And I feel like there's a sense of camaraderie and real community and just friendship with those people who were still here. So it was it was nice. And of course, New York, you know, in some sense, we're lucky. There's a little bit more of a homogeneity. That's what I'm looking for in kind of our outlook on things because we went through it and it was so rough. You know, no one's fighting over masks at Costco in New York. Right. Everyone's wearing them. So right. I do think that in that sense, you feel a real, a real sort of coming together and unity of mind, I guess, in terms of uh, how we're going to get through it, too, which is nice. Yeah, I think that camaraderie is really important. And I'm glad you mentioned it. I mean, I think if you live, I live in the, what I would call the rural South. And um, there is a camaraderie here, certainly, but it is very different. There is kind of a more of a debate over masks or, you know, certain decisions that are being made or whatever. I have to laugh because yesterday, a sweet, dear customer came in the store and asked me how I was doing. And I did that Southern thing where I said, oh, I'm doing just fine. How are you? <laughs> and she said, 
you're not great. And I, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I just, I didn't think anybody was doing great. <laughs> I just, I just, I didn't think anybody yeah, was great. And she, you, customer. <laughs> what she said, she was like, well, I'm doing great. And I thought, mm. well, good for you. And that disconnect, I imagine, does not, does not really exist in New York right now because you all lived through something really hard and traumatic potentially. Yes. And I, I think that for us, at least in talking to my friends, I think the conflict has come when we started to sort of come out of our cocoons in June and July. And, you know, maybe we drove to see family or we we were seeing people a bit more. No one really quite understood or could relate to the trauma, I guess, that we had been through. And so when I would get frustrated about somebody not wearing masks, you know, when I wasn't in New York or something, you know, no one really quite could understand. And I had to keep explaining that to my friends and family who who weren't from here. I said, you know, you have to understand what we went through and the kind of really just unbelievable uh, fear and and death and sort of the silence of the city and the, the trauma that it was, that it really did affect how New Yorkers felt. And I think it took us a little bit longer to get past that. And I do understand that people in other parts of the country didn't go through that in the spring. That's right. So they kind of, their summer, they're like, why, why is you know, why are we having to do this? Why are we having to lock down? Why are we having to wear masks? And I think New Yorkers were a little bit like the mole people who came out of the cave <laughs> and were blinded by the light and very confused why everyone else was having an okay time. So yeah. we're not doing great. I was never doing great. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about, so you're this Southerner living in New York City. You've written for magazines like Southern Living and Real Simple for years. What made you kind of take this leap into writing and publishing a book? And kind of how did you make that leap? Well, I think that I would say anybody probably who has written for magazines or is a writer in a professional capacity in any way would would always harbor a little bit of a desire to write a book. Um, I So I, I think I'd always wanted to. For me, I mean, it was a, it was a combination of sort of providence and also just really basic financial and um, family logistics. You know, for, for many years, I had young kids. Um, I was, I needed to make a living. I was working in magazines and I needed those steady paychecks. And I am not someone who can wake up at 4 a.m. and write for two hours before the sun comes up and my children awake. I've just never been that person. I don't multitask well. I have to really throw myself into one thing or the other. So I just spent many, many years building my career and making a living. I needed to make a living and pay our bills, help pay our bills. So it just I just didn't have the time. And then I think a lot of things kind of fell into place. My kids were a little bit older. They were in school. I do have a toddler who came along later in life, but I have childcare for him. And I think my husband's job was at a place where I was able to really say, okay, I'm going to take three or four months off and just work on a book proposal. I am really lucky in the sense that my agent, my literary agent is a former magazine editor and was a friend of mine and a colleague. And she had contacted me about possibly having any book ideas because she was you know, building her roster of writers and we were talking about it. And I had always thought that this is what I would do, kind of write a book of, of essays, a nonfiction book. I'm a one-trick pony. I do not have a ton of talents. This is sort of it. <laughs> so that's the kind of book I wanted to write. It's the kind of book I love to read. And um, I was talking all about things I'm passionate about, like living in New York City, raising a family here. And she sort of made a joke that, well, yes, but you've, you can't be too New York-centric. You've got to appeal to all these you know, evangelical Christians in the middle of the country. And I sort of looked at her and I was like, yeah, I think I could probably do that. And then she just laughed and she said, well, that, that's what you should write about. You have this 
sort of duality about you in the sense that you, you've lived in New York for half your life at this point. I know you to be sort of this person, and I, I've known you were a Christian, but I, you know, she probably didn't really know how big of a part of my life it was and how central it was to my identity. And so she said, you know, people like me don't think of people like you being like you. And, and I think there's a lot of people from the South and where I grew up who don't look at New Yorkers as someone like me. They have a very different view of people who would raise a family in New York, or they think everybody's crazy who would raise a family in New York. So that became kind of the impetus for the book. That's one of my questions because I've read the book. I really enjoyed it. I found it to be both hilarious in parts and then also really bittersweet in parts. And I wondered partly who kind of was the target audience for this because you're right. You're coming from this real sense of duality where you are this New Yorker, but you're also a Southerner on the inside, maybe kind of sort of, and then at least by birth, right? Right. And then you also are this evangelical Christian. And so this book is kind of this <laughs> wonderful little hodgepodge. Like I feel like it could appeal to a variety of readers, but I'm curious when you were writing, who were you thinking about when you were writing it? What was the kind of target audience? And what did you, how did you want them to feel when you, when they left your pages? Mm, that's um, an interesting question. And it's a little bit of a hard one to answer as I've started talking about this book more with people now that it's out in the world. You know, everyone says you need to have that elevated elevator pitch about what your book's about. And I don't have one. I think I drive publicists and marketing people crazy because it depends on who I'm talking to. Um, I will say when I started writing this book, I did not, I still don't think of it as a Christian book. I hope it is not shelved with the Christian living books. I don't know at the bookshop, y'all can do whatever you want, but <laughs> I, I don't think of it as that type of book. When I started writing this book and really the whole, throughout the whole process, the people that I thought about as I was writing are the people that I do life with here in New York or, or anywhere, people who are not surrounded by a typical Christian culture and don't uh, necessarily think of themselves as someone who would pick up a book that had anything to do with faith. So I was really writing it to the parents that I know from my kids' school, the people I work with, um, my neighbors, friends in my building who have a very different view of what they think Christians are, especially somebody who might use the word evangelical, which of course I don't walk around the streets of New York using that word anymore. But <laughs> So that is who I wrote it for. Now, I'm sure I mean, I know now that there are lots of Christian women in this world and men who are reading this book and enjoying it. And of course, I predicted that and I'm so thankful for that. And that's wonderful. I really wrote it as just a, a book by a Christian woman, but that would be entertaining and that people would would relate to and would have stories in it that are really universal about work and friendship and identity and marriage and parenting and all those things but that would make people laugh and would just be good stories and be entertaining, but had this lens of faith in it. I think you accomplished that because I think one of the the quote I kind of started the episode with is this um, kind of beautiful quote that comes after this funny story, if I recall, kind of about how you were dressing your children. I love parts of your book where it was something kind of humorous, but then this really poetic kind of beautiful sentiment. And so the quote is, because identity is complicated, we can be proud of where we come from and want to escape it at the same time. And I think that's kind of what you're speaking to, even as you're talking about who the book is for, who the book was originally intended for, we all contain multitudes, right? No matter our faith background or our geographical background, like we we are more than one thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so and so I think in publishing, that can be hard because publishers and publicists and agents want to know where that your book can be shelved and who can comp your book and who can blurb your book. And 
um, you'll you'll be pleased to know your book is in the memoir section okay. with all the other with all the other memoirs, for. memoirs and essay collections. And so I'm curious those sentences about identity and about kind of this pride that we have maybe in where we come from and how we were raised or who we were or who we are versus also sometimes being embarrassed or confused or unsure about our identities. You wrote those sentences, I'm sure, a few years ago now. I'm curious, do they still ring true and relevant to you today? And and what makes them still be relevant and true in 2021? Oh, wow. Yes, absolutely. They are true. You know, I think the reason that so many of us kind of cling to one certain identity and don't like to be complicated is because because it's easier. I mean, I think about people I know in New York who they go to the Southern restaurants, they hang out with their Southern friends, they, you know, get together to watch Southern SEC football or whatever it is, because it's because that's safe. And because that feels like they have a home. And it's much harder to say, well, I like this part of my upbringing, but but I really also feel very much at home in New York. I feel very, very at home in New York. I talk about this a ton in the book. I feel called to New York. I feel like a New Yorker. I've lived here for longer than I lived in Memphis at this point. I'm married a New Yorker. I'm raising children as, as New Yorkers. But it is really difficult, especially as my children get older, to realize that, you know, I am raising them in a really different culture than I than I grew up. The important thing to me when talking about identity and um, this, I feel like I don't I don't say these words specifically in the book, but I feel like it's a little bit of a through line through it is that you know, because my identity is in my faith, all of these other things can be a little bit less important. I think when it becomes difficult is when your identity either as a Southerner or as a New Yorker, and believe me, there are lots of New Yorkers who put their identity in being a New Yorker or a finance person or a Broadway dancer, whatever it is that you come to New York for. Um, When those things become first on the list, then, you know, it it gets more complicated. I feel like my identity just being a Christian, my identity being rooted in sort of my faith makes all of those things take their rightful place in a sense. And so you can change your mind or you can say, yeah, I don't really, um, sometimes I love this about the South and sometimes I hate this about the South. Or sometimes I love this about New York and sometimes I hate this about New York. Or sometimes I feel like I'm a great mom and wow, I was just put on earth to be a wonderful mother to these children. And a lot of times, more often than not for me, I think <laughs> I am terrible at this and I'm not a natural mother. And wow, why did I have three kids? I don't, I can't even handle one. So I think, but all of those things don't become identity crises for me. I mean, they're hard. It's not that those circumstances aren't hard at times or that I don't wrestle with who I am or loving my family well, who lives in the South, um, all of those things. But it doesn't have to be like a crisis of of my identity, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the identities that you are really open about, and I uh, we're talking, we're recording this on Inauguration Day, <laughs> and one of the identities that you talk pretty openly about is uh, political identity. And I, I like what you're saying about certain identities being of less importance to you because of your faith. But you write really openly and pretty extensively about your personal politics. While I don't know that it's important to get into personal politics all the time, I am curious what conversations and in-person relationships and conversations look like for you, particularly right now surrounding politics. You know, I think so many of us are craving, I know I am, I guess I won't put it on anybody else. I am craving conversations with people, whether they believe the same things I do or different things, but, but true conversations instead of like, 
I don't know, tweet fights about, <laughs> about, yeah. about politics and what you believe. And so I'm wondering, you, wa- you are so open in the book about your politics and kind of what drew you to those. But I'm wondering, what do personal political conversations look like for you, um, particularly both in New York and then maybe also with your Southern friends and relatives? Okay, well, first of all, we need to say which side of the politics I'm on. I will do that for <laughs> you so you don't have to do it. So yes, I talk about in the book how I grew up in a pretty conservative Republican family in, in Memphis. That's not surprising to anyone and how um, I am definitely a, a fairly liberal Democrat in New York <laughs> now. For many, many years, I was a registered independent. I didn't want to make my mother too mad. I am now officially a registered Democrat, have been for several years. You know, it's funny, in New York, uh, political conversations, if you're a Democrat, are very, very easy because most people agree with you. They're not really, we do not find any, um, many Republicans in New York City, especially in our circles. So in some sense, New York is much more homogeneous than, than the South even. I mean, I think that my friends in the South are having much more difficult conversations within their churches, within their communities, because there is a little bit more of a schism, especially after the past four years. Um, there, you know, in New York, everyone pretty much agrees with you. Where, where I come into play is that I think people are very surprised that I'm a fairly conservative, theologically anyway, Christian. Um, and a very devout Christian, and I'm not Catholic, which, you know, is tends to be much more on the left in terms of politics, but that I'm also a Democrat. So I think my conversations are surrounding more, you know, how do I reconcile the fact that so many people who call themselves evangelicals were such enormous Trump supporters, were, you know, were on that side of the fence for four years, and especially in the past month or so, the kind of, I mean, that I never thought I would see the word evangelical written in the New York Times as much as I have in the past month. It's just obviously a huge topic of conversation. So I think for me, politically, in my circles in New York, it's trying to explain, yes, that is not the faith. I mean, that is not the faith that I aspire to or follow, that the Bible I read and the Jesus I know would not act like this, that, or the other, or this is why I support these policies. And this is why I support, I don't support certain policies of the Democratic Party. I don't agree with everything that either party stands for. So I think for me in New York, it's much more talking about my faith and how that informs my politics and how it, you know, has me disagree with some of the policies of my party. And in terms of talking to my friends in the South, I have to be honest, when I wrote this book, I was really, really scared. I talked to several friends before I really started it and thought, Ugh, do I even get into politics? And most of them said, yes, you need to, because I think that there's so much misconception out there about Christianity because of politics that you do need to talk about this. And then as we got closer and closer to the past election, I was much and much less alone. I thought that I was going to be um, kind of screaming into a void. And I think that there were so many people, Christians in the Christian circles, who really spoke out. Um, about what their faith was leading them to do in terms of voting differently than they had before, voting differently than their parents did. And so it became a lot easier. And I have to say, most of my friends in the South kind of tend to trend similarly to I do in terms of their voting. They might not be registered Democrats, but I think that that's what the polarization has wrought in the past few years is that there's a lot more of us who are kind of falling in the middle. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the last four years kind of flipped that a little bit on its head, a little bit upside down. I I don't, it would be interesting. I don't know what the last, the conversations would have looked like the last four years under a different leader. But I know even locally in my own community, the conversations about politics, particularly among Christians or among believers, I think looks a lot different than it would have eight years ago. You know, by nature of writing an essay 
you know, a series of essays or a collection of essays. I feel like being vulnerable is just part of it. Um, but you write not only about politics and religion, the two, you know, joking things that we're, we're jokingly not supposed to ever talk about. You talk very openly about them. And then not only that, but you're also, there's a really poignant essay, essay about the death of your father. You write a lot about raising your kids. And I wondered for you, both in the writing process and now that the book is out in the world, what has it been like to kind of open yourself? I, I used the phrase in my, when I jotted these questions, now, what's it been like to cut yourself open like that, which which is a more violent <laughs> way than I meant for it to sound. But but to me, I think being vulnerable is kind of this act of, for me, I guess, as a relatively private person, sometimes on the internet, I'm a little more vulnerable than I even mean to be. But, but what has it been like to open yourself up in that way, both first in the writing process, but now also that the book is in the consumer's hands? Yeah, I'm not a private person. I'm happy to fillet myself for the general public <laughs> and their amusement. It has always been a little bit of who I am. So it did not feel, during the writing process, it did not feel strange. Now, I mean, I did, I think the closest I got to really feeling like I'm not a crier, I'm not a super emotional person most of the time. And the closest I got to really feeling like it was a lot to put out there and maybe it was going to be um, difficult for me was I did talk about miscarriage and sort of pregnancy loss mm. in one chapter. And um, that was that was difficult. But telling stories sort of about, you know, talking about my dad's death, he died two weeks before the book manuscript was due. He was not, mm. I was not really going to write about his death. It was, it was sudden. It was not expected. I had to call my editor and say, I need another couple of weeks because I first of all have to go back and re- revise what I've already written about my dad and and think about it in terms of now he's gone and put things in the past tense. And I also want to write about his death. And I wrote about his funeral and I want to write about, you know, that at the end of the book. So there was a lot that changed in terms of that at the end. And I think I was so in the middle of it that I really did not process it very much when I was mm-hmm. um, when I was in the middle of writing it. But you know, I have always just been an oversharer. I am an extrovert. I am a talker. I've always been much more of an oversharer. I'm not someone who um, shies away from those conversations. I'm super fun at a dinner party or not. It depends on what kind of person you are, whether you want to be seated next to me or not. And my husband read every single thing before I even sent it to my agent or my editor or anyone. He read everything. And I think he he's we've been together a very long time. He has a really good sense for what's going too far. Um, I think the hardest thing now that it's out in the world is my mom is a very private person. And so these are not stories that necessarily she would ever tell anybody. I I know it's not comfortable for her. But at the same time, she's known me my whole life. She raised me. She knows what I'm like. She knew this was coming. It was really difficult for her to read the manuscript. I gave it to her in February of 2020 after I'd finished it. And of course, my dad died two months before. And she couldn't read it for a long time because she knew that was coming. And it was just too raw for her. You know, I, I do think at the same time, I'm not a journaler. I know a lot of people are. I'm not a journaler. I just remember things in my brain and and try to come up with them later. I think, but so this is my journal in a sense. This is sort of my way of writing things down and giving a little bit of history to my family and my kids and, and, but I'm just sharing it with the whole world. So that's okay. 
I well, and I think that makes it personal to you, but also something that other people can really see themselves in and identify with. Because in many ways, because it almost does read like a journal, it also reads like a conversation. And so we can't maybe sit next to you at a dinner party, but this feels like the next best thing. Like this, it feels very conversational to me that you could read it and then get a sense of who someone is and also, yeah. A, to me, a conversation is what a book, I want all my books to feel like they're having a conversation with me. And so I think you, I think you accomplished that. Well, I was just, we were talking earlier kind of about the, how to categorize this book. And, you know, yeah, I talk a lot about my faith and I feel like there are not a lot of Christian books out there that talk about things in a really, you know, talk about the nasty stuff or talk about the ugly parts or talk about the yelling or the fighting or the tears or whatever. I mean, I think that for me as a Christian too, I wanted to be really, really honest because I don't, I think that sometimes people who aren't immersed in that culture, who did not grow up in a Christian home or Christian sort of environment, think that Christians feel like they have it all together or can pray away their problems or whatever it is. And I really wanted to make sure that I was putting forth an incredibly honest portrayal of the fact that, yeah, I know that Jesus loves me. And yes, I know where my hope lies and where my future lies. And yet I still am like super, super angry or really, really pissed or really, really sad, or I'm raging and and angry or sad about X, Y, or Z, or I screw up royally, even though I know I'm not supposed to. So I think that was important to me too. I think that it's, it is important for your personhood to come through. I think sometimes in Christian nonfiction literature in particular, that sometimes gets put to the wayside. And maybe it's because some Christian nonfiction books are more theological in nature or whatever. But for an essay collection where you're trying to, the reader is essentially trying to get to know you and learn more about you. I think it is important that the humanity of the writer shine through because that's what friendships are about too. Like that's what that's what dinner parties are about. Right. That's what conversations are about. Is yeah, I didn't know one it was going to come community. out in the pandemic, but now I'm just everybody's <laughs> dinner party friend. You can't have dinner you parties, but you can read right. my book and I'll be your <laughs> dinner party friend, your inappropriate dinner party friend. That's exactly right. You close Good Apple with, I thought, some really beautiful thoughts about home. And I do, I, so many authors that I've talked to in the last six months, you know, they did not have any anticipation that their book was going to be released during a global pandemic. There was no expectation of that. There was no preparation for that. And as a result, these books are just so bizarrely timely. Like, I, I don't think authors fully intended for them to be as timely as they are. And so you close out with some thoughts about home. And I wonder for you, what does home look like or mean to you right now after a year spent, you know, holed up in your apartment after a year with a global pandemic and a month of constitutional crises, maybe four years of constitutional crises, depending on where you fall in this political spectrum. What does home look like for you now? It's very crowded and very loud. And I really think I might need a bigger apartment. Um, <laughs> so yeah, home, I think that I have always, ever since I first got to New York, it has felt like home to me. Not a lot of Southerners feel like that. They feel like it's an adventure and then they leave or they stay for a while, but it never truly feels like home. For me, it has always felt like home ever since I first got here. And I think in the past year, it has been really hard to live in a small space with three children doing remote learning at times and two adults trying to work and occasionally a babysitter in and out of here. 
And I think that has only solidified that I'm in the right place because it's been really difficult and we haven't ever once thought about leaving. We have a lot of friends that have left, people who've been to, gone to the suburbs or people who just left for eight months and then only came back when school started. My husband is from New York. So there are definitely times where there's a comfort level with living in the city and raising kids here that he has that maybe other people don't. And I'm lucky that I have him. But the fact that we have been through such a hard time and dealt with work and school and life in a small apartment and still love it. And I still feel like this is my community. And I still feel so committed to my church and my neighbors and bringing the city back from a really difficult time. And it's going to be a long road for New York and it's not easy. And all the fun stuff is sort of stripped away right now. And the fact that I still feel like it's home really means that it must be to me. I I really do love that. I think we've all learned a lot in the last 12 months about who we are. And yes, I think we're asking ourselves. I mean, I know just in my own friendships, I'm listening to friends try to figure out, do I need to move closer to my parents? Do I need to like a lot? I think there's a lot of reevaluating that is happening after the last year. And so I love that you have kind of reached this conclusion that New York is is home for you. And I, I think that's really wonderful. I want to close out with a kind of some lightning round questions that we ask every guest who comes on the podcast or who we talk to in store. And the first one um, sometimes is a doozy. It just depends on, <laughs> on what kind of reader you are. But what is a classic book you've never read, but you wish you had? Okay, I have an answer for this because it comes up a lot in my thoughts. I have never read A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. Oh. And I mean, I just talked, waxed poetic about how much I love New York. <laughs> and this is such a classic book about New York. It's, you know, about Williamsburg. And uh, yeah, I've never read it. So I would really, I need to read that book. Of course, as you know, there's just so many great new books that come out fast and furious. And so everything always, something always takes priority. But I've never read a tree present book on Oh, I read it as an adult. Like I in um I did not read it as a kid, but I read it for a book club a few years ago and it really is lovely. You're absolutely right. It's hard and I talk about this on the podcast all the time. It's hard to read backlist titles much less classic titles because I feel like I'm just reading furiously new releases all the time. Um but when you can, it really is a, a lovely book and would be a fun one to read um with your daughter too. I, that's what I was thinking. It. Maybe she's she's 11 and I feel like she's probably old enough to oh, yeah. read it together yeah. now. And I just love books about New York. I mean, I'm really, I'm really lame and boring. I just, I read books that are nonfiction essay collections. Like I write and I read books about New York. So I probably need to expand, but I do love books. About New York. <laughs> what podcasts do you listen to? Or are you a podcast listener for that matter? I am a podcast listener, although I'm pretty basic. Everyone who listens to you is probably gonna be like, yep, yeah, me too. I mean, I listen to the daily, I listen to pantsuit politics. I will say the one, this is going to be a super embarrassing fact about me, but I will get in when my husband and I get into like a, a deep sort of long running television show, like the Americans, for example, we loved the Americans. We spent many years, I mean, it ended a couple of years ago, but we spent many years sort of going deep into the Americans. And right now we're watching Outlander, which again has been on for a long time, but we never got into it before. So we've started Outlander. I start to find, I start to be the weird teenage girl who starts to look through podcasts, looking for podcast episodes with actors from these shows that we're currently obsessed with. So, you know, I'm looking through podcast episodes to try to find Outlander cast members who've been in podcasts, and then I listen to them. 
I think that's delightful. I mean, I'm I'm this close to cutting out posters of the act of like <laughs> Sam Hewen and putting them on my wall. That's where we are. <laughs> but um, and the other the other lame sort of like nerdy podcast that I listen to is I listen to Crosstown with Pat Kiernan. This is a New York thing, but he is the everyone has kind of the local news person that they love. Pat Kiernan mm-hmm. is the host of New York One, the morning show. He wakes, I used to wake up every morning to him. He would read the papers to me. He would tell me what the weather was. And then we switched our cable provider and New York One is owned by a certain cable provider. So we no longer have it. And I am so angry. I'm still angry about it with my husband for switching us to Fios because I lost my beloved Pat Kiernan. So there is a podcast that's not even that good. It's very basic, but at least I have my beloved Pat Kiernan in my ears. So yeah, I do like some true crime things like Dr. Death. I loved that one. He's He actually is from Memphis and went to my church, Dr. Death. But um, <laughs> I think that most of the podcasts that I listen to have to do with with politics or current events. Those are those are usually the ones that I go to every day. Yeah, your sweet spot. I those are they're very similar to my own podcast listening taste. But I, I you were making me laugh because I when we get deep in a show or a movie or something like that, it's not so much the actors. Like it's just truly since I was in high school, I have been a reader of recaps mm-hmm. and like a, a listener of like podcast episodes. So a couple summers ago, Jordan, my husband, had never seen. Dawson's Creek. And so I was like, well, let's fix this. Like, so we watched Dawson's Creek together. And then I like scrounged around until I found, again, not even a particularly good podcast, (laughs) but I found a podcast that was like recapping each episode, which again, I'd already seen the show. Jordan was the newbie, but I just love stuff like that. I love, I don't know, I go in deep. Like once I'm into something, and maybe it's my Enneagram number, but like I'm in it. I'm Do in it deep. Do you ever go to um, the website gofugyourself.com? They are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they're fashion. I mean, they're fashion writers, but I think they are some of the best writers on the internet. I think they're so talented. They're so <laughs> smart and so funny. And they also, in addition to doing a lot of fashion stuff, as you know, they do a lot of television recaps. That's how they met each other. So I, I absolutely 100% when we finish an episode of Outlander, I go back and read their recap yes. of it. And I enjoy it just as much. I laugh so hard. They just, yeah, I'm with you. Um, okay. What is your favorite part about life in the South? <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, the food. It's really, I mean, that's sort of a typical answer. But I miss barbecue very, very much. It is impossible to find great barbecue in uh, New York City. They just can't cook it on a big smoker in the backyard like they can in the South. You know, I do really miss, I think what I miss, I miss my friends. I have really tight friendships from home. The My, my best friends in the world are people that I started pre-K with and went all the way through high school with at the same school. We've known each other since we were four. They all live in the South, two are in Memphis, and one's in Birmingham, one's in Arizona. But Um, I miss those friends. And I think what I miss about those friendships is, especially in the South, it can be hard to entertain in New York. I mean, we do it. And I certainly am no, uh, I do not shy away from having 20 or 30 people in my apartment. And it's, it's totally fine and fun when it's not COVID. But I do miss in the South being able to say, okay, come over, especially now that a lot of people have a lot of kids. It can be difficult to just have a big family over and be able to be in a backyard and grill and have the kids running around and sit on the, the screen porch or the patio or whatever it is. I miss that ability to entertain and kind of that aspect of hospitality in the South, being able to just have a gathering in a backyard. And that's something that we really cannot do in New York. It's, it's it takes a lot more planning and it's a lot more logistically difficult. So I miss that. 
I had never thought about that, but I'm sure that that is true. Um, in the South, it's just more like, come on over whenever, yeah, <laughs> whenever you want. To the porch yes, and here yes. It's like, oh, we can't invite them over. They have four kids. Where are we going to put all those children? <laughs> right. What are you reading right now? Okay. So I started Hamnet. It was a digital library loan. I get, you know, digital loans from my public library and I got busy and I really don't like reading on my phone. I don't like reading on a Kindle either. I'm very much a hold the book in my hands person. I don't like reading digitally, especially with my kids. I don't like them to see me reading on my phone. So I think I just got distracted and there were other things going on. And because Hamnet was on my phone, I looked down one day and I got a notification that it had been returned to the public library (laughs) and I had not finished it. So I'm going to get back to that. I need to just go get it from the, get it physically from the library, but um, I'll go back to it. So I'm about to start and you'll be so happy because I listened to your podcast episode about your favorite books of 2020. And this was your favorite book of 2020. I'm about to start Transcending Kingdom. Oh my gosh. It's so good. Homegoing. I was a little late to homegoing, but homegoing was my favorite book that I read last year. And I just love that she's from Huntsville. I love that it's just a new Southern voice, a new Southern writer. And I mean, not new, but newish. And so I'm really, that one is sitting right here next to me, next to my dad. And that's what I'm starting now. I think you'll especially love it. There is so much. She she writes a lot in this particular one about Huntsville, but she also writes a lot about faith and science. I think it is fantastic. Obviously, you've already heard me wax yes. on and on about it, but, but <laughs> I approve. not the only one. So many people have. So yeah, I'm really, really excited. Where can people kind of follow you or learn more about your work or what maybe might be coming next for you? Um, let's say they read Good Apple, they pick it up from the bookshelf or from their own library or independent bookstore, they love it. Where can they find you and what is kind of coming up next for you? So I am um, most active in terms of social media, I would say on Instagram and I'm at E.S. Passarella. There's a sneaky S in there, E.S. Passarella. My website, elizabethpassarella.com, has articles, sort of a back backlog of articles that I've written, um, depending on, I guess, if it's still January, if it's still in the newsstands, there's a, an article in this month's Real Simple about putting my baby in a closet, which is where he sleeps. <laughs> that's, um, that's in the January issue of Real Simple Magazine. I write for them. And I also write pretty regularly for Southern Living Magazine. So I have a, a column there, Social Graces, which comes out a couple of few times a year. And I do other features and different things for them. So um, I do a lot of stuff for Southern Living. But I'm around. I'm, I will continue to write for magazines and newspapers as I'm you know, promoting and, and shepherding this book into the world. And then I am starting on another book, which I yeah. have to write. I'm really hopeful that my kids go back to school full time before I have to turn that in. Wonderful. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so grateful for the chance to get to talk with you, and I cannot wait to share your book with our readers. Thank you so much, Annie. It was really great to talk to you, and thank you for all you do for all of us authors out there. 